Welcome, James. You've had such a varied and bountiful career that it was actually difficult to know where to start because there's so much to talk about. So my first question really feels like it should be, when do you find the time to write? (laughs) (laughs) I'd like to start, though, by talking about your incredibly popular series of books set in the Cambridgeshire village of Grantchester, featuring the reluctant detective Canon Sidney Chambers. May I ask you where the inspiration for Sidney came from? Well... It's a complicated issue because the simple answer that people always expect is that he's based on my father, Robert Runce, who was the Archbishop of Canterbury. But he's not really. He's sort of... I wanted to have a popular, interesting character who was faced with moral dilemmas in the past and who lived a good life. So he could have been a doctor as much as a priest. But I thought, well, I sort of know about priests, really, and I've been brought up in a priestly environment. So... And making him a priest, I also wanted someone who could get out and about and go where the police couldn't go and who would be partial to secrets. So he would be told things and then he'd have to decide whether to keep the secret or (laughs) spill the beans. So it seemed to me that the priest offered an opportunity Mm. to do a lot of things that a doctor or a teacher couldn't. And so it became a sort of practical solution to wanting to write a social history of Britain. So the first thing I wanted to do was kind of write a social history of Britain about from sort of 1953, from the 50s up to the late 70s, and to sort of talk about the background to our our modern lives and what that means and how much everything's changed. So it started off as a sort of mixture of social history, crime, and then the, the vicar bit, sort of came in quite late, really, before, as I was working out what I wanted to do and the kind of stories I wanted to tell. So it was a it's a combination of things. Did setting it in that period give you more scope with the plot or is, was it easier to... Well, it has to be before forensics because oh, otherwise okay, right. um, he the police yeah. just say, go away, <laughs> what are you doing over here, Vicar? Um, so it has to be before forensics, which is generally the late 70s, early 80s. So it has to be kind of then. And setting it in the 50s, I also wanted to set it sort of in the aftermath of war and to track social change, by which I mean that, of course, in the 50s, the death penalty was still extant. Uh, Homosexuality was illegal. Uh, Women's careers were much more limited than they are now. Social roles were uh, were more defined, I suppose. Uh, so, and I wanted to ch- uh, wanted to see how much that had changed and to track those changes across time. I must admit, when I was reading them, the um, one of the things that most shocked me, because it made me think about it, was the perpetrator in the first story of In the yeah. Shadow of Death. They're actually going to go to get hanged, you know. They're, they're yeah, going she's to, going and, to and get hanged. She sort of thinking, oh, give away there. Oh. She's, no, 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 anyway. Yeah, she's going to get hanged. Yeah, yes. and I, um, I, I was really surprised because it made me stop and think that yes. actually that happened in my parents' lifetime. Yes, that, absolutely. It was a real, yeah, it kind of brought me back yes. to... And The Shadow of Death is, of course, the shadow of the Second World War, and it's the shadow of death that hangs over all our lives. Yeah. That's a kind of double thing. Fantastic. Um, you've also, the, the books are all set in Grantchester, which I must admit, um, I hadn't realised was actually a real village in Cambridgeshire. Was this a place that you knew well from growing up in that area and why particularly choose Grantchester? Well, I did, uh, at the beginning I thought about a made-up place, totally made-up, rather like uh, Trollope did with Barset and the Barset Chronicles. But then I thought it would be good to have a, a real place. And Grantchester is a village two miles outside Cambridge. I was born in Cambridge. Um, it's also a kind of rather iconic English village uh, because of the Rupert Brooke poem, The Old Vicarage, Grantchester, and is there honey still for tea? Um, and um, and I, I kind of thought, well, this will do it. And also 
it's it's near a town that also has a university and it's not far from London. So you don't have the Midsummer Murders problem of everyone should be dead by now. So there's a lot of variety in uh, in Grantchester. And um, it sort of says an English village quickly, I think. And so that's what I wanted to do. Now, Canon Sidney Chambers, he's aided in his detection work by his friend Inspector Geordie Keating. Did you yes. actually have to do any research on police procedures to support the plot of the books? Not a lot, I have to say. It's it's an amateur detective sorting it out. Mm. And the police procedures, uh, because it's pro- before forensics and because mm. it's quite amateur and because it's local and villagey life, I did a bit, but not, not very much, to be honest. That's the one bit. I did quite a lot of research in art, history and theology, but not so much in crime procedures. So I'm terrified of being caught out. Yeah, no, that was my sense of <laughs> I know, yeah, I know. Because it, is, it does sort of um, yes, I think, oh, gloss very much over that, but that not, it doesn't take away from the story at all. Well, actually, it's, yes, it's... that's it. But the other thing is that I, uh, police procedures, I didn't, so there's hardly any coroner. No. There's a bit of coroner, but I don't like those novels which have sort of three pages of dead body described. Yeah. Uh, I, I like just getting on with it. And it's mine, is, it's a whodunit rather than a... It's, it's a why done it as much as a who done it. You know, that's the, that's the, it's, it's about why people become desperate and do desperate things really as much as it's not, I, I'm not great at the old clever, clever twisty plots and, and I'm not that interested in, you know, because uh, the, 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 the um, because the policeman can discover something extraordinary through detection. It's, it's more about amateur, amateur uh, psychology, I suppose. The um, going, sort of going on from that, actually, that the Grantchester mysteries could be labelled in the relatively new genre, actually, of cosy crime. But yes. I've read it's a term that you're not particularly fond of. Is it because of the somewhat contradictory nature of the word cosy in relation to the activity? Yes, of crime absolutely, murder? exactly that. I don't think crime can ever be cosy. Mm. So this, I think, this goes back to this idea that cosy crime doesn't involve, you know, long descriptions of violence. Um, and therefore it's cosy. But murder, of course, I would say that beneath the tea cosy, uh, the, 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 the uh, pot is scalding and the tea is poisoned. So it's never that cosy. Um, and uh, it, yes, I, I don't like it because it, it, it's just sort of, it's slightly patronising because it implies you're not a serious crime writer. You're not proper like Ian Rankin. You know, you're a bit of a, an amateur. And uh, I, I'm, Ian's a friend of mine, so I can say that. Yeah. I'm allowed to say that. I think they may be a bit cross, but... <laughs> <laughs> the books have now been turned into the very popular TV show Grantchester, which, as, as far as I'm aware, is now in its third series, starring yes. James Norton as Sydney Chambers and Robson Green as Inspector Keating. As the author of the novels, how much input do you have in the scripts and the casting, if at all? In fact? Well, yes, if at all is a good question. Um, not very much, a bit. I mean, they sent me a showreel of this unheard of actor called James Norton, and we all thought, oh, he's quite good. And <laughs> now he's a sort of major star, so that's quite nice. Uh, I said, can we have Robson Green, please? Um, please, Brilliant, can you try yeah. and get Robson? Because, you know, I tried to make it quite easy, making him a Geordie detective. Mm. I tried to make it quite simple for them. Um, and Tessa Pete Jones, who plays Mrs. Maguire, I'd add a little say on that. Um, but generally, no, they send me the scripts. They ask if I've got any opinions. I give them my opinions. They sometimes ignore them, sometimes take them. And it's a quite a big departure from the books. The, the, the books In the books, he's, um, he marries quite quickly. He marries at the end of the second book. But in uh, the TV series, he remains unmarried so that everyone can still think that they too can marry James Norton. Yeah. <laughs> I still believe that. <laughs> yes, well, he's still available. Yeah. <laughs> 
<laughs> and that's actually one of the things having read the books I, I just think it is an exceptional bit of casting I do think yes they did it I think really we got well. lucky there yeah, really but absolutely. he was very yeah but it, he's he's marvelous and yeah he's he's just great so it's a lovely thing I think that even though they do depart very radically from the pr- plots they uh they remain true to the spirit of the novels which I like and when, when you write, actually, are you focused solely on the story and the characters or are you actually thinking in the back of your mind how the readers might receive it or even, again, how it might transfer into television or radio? I try not to think about television and radio because that's a distraction. Yeah. I try just to think about what would give, how to vary the tone, I think. I think that it's quite important that these books have funny bits in them so, because if you have a funny section then you can be more even more serious afterwards so yeah. I like them having a variety of tone and so I do think I suppose that's what I think about I think about shape and character and setting and making sure it's true and I think most importantly I might want to make sure that each paragraph has something to say that it has a, is a pleasure to read I mean I think the idea is when you're writing, you try to establish a rhythm through the prose that is then a pleasurable rhythm, and and it should be like a piece of music, but that changes and varies in tone. But as always, you kind of know where you are. Well, it works. As this, your books certainly make you want to carry on reading, so it's um, oh, good. definitely, well, I'm glad um, definitely getting that stop. right. <laughs> yeah. In crime writing, particularly, are there any rules that you feel you need to stick by in writing in the genre? Are there any yeah, you can't cheat. Yes, you can't. Um, I think it's quite cheaty to introduce a murderer late on. I think that's quite naughty. I think that you've got to have the murderer has to be kind of present from early on, or the criminal needs to be quite present. You can't just have somebody arrive with 20 pages to go and they're the ones that have done it. I think that's cheaty. Um, I think that you have to try not to have, to withhold information that the read, you have to give the reader a fair chance to work out what's going on. And you have to not be implausible or try not to do the with one bound, he was free. I mean, I do sometimes play with the ludicrous. My major problem is silliness. I kind of suddenly <laughs> like something silly and it's just too self-indulgent and I generally have to cut them. But occasionally, some of the early earlier ones, there's a bit of naughtiness at times, which I just thought, well, that's too funny. I'm going to keep that in and I should have really cut it, you know. <laughs> Does it get past the editing stage? Sometimes they get past them. Well, there's there's quite a lot of editing. Mm. My wife is the first, and she she says you cannot get away with this. That's can't you can't do that. (laughs) So even if it's funny, she says, I know you think it's funny, but it's not true. It's not accurate. People didn't say that kind of thing then. Um, This is to do with sort of swearing and sex, basically, because you know there was. In fact, I've just uh, just before talking to you. I was with a, a, a man who, in his 80s who said to me, you know, there wasn't as much of it about this sex malarkey. I never had nearly as much as Sydney. It's not fair. It was shared around. He has far too much. So um, uh, you, you, you've got to try and be authentic, really. I think that's that's the rule. And, and, and not think you're cleverer than the reader as well. I think that's really important. Some people... You've got to be careful not to show off your research as well. That's showing off. You know, some modern fiction, when they, it's a very bad trait in history fiction where they prove they've been to the library. Nothing wrong with going to the library, but just leave it out. Don't just put all your research in one I great see. slab, you know. So you've got to integrate it mm. into the story. The story has to, the story and the character have to come first, really, I think. 
Well, actually, going on from that as well, um, I'd kind of like to touch a little bit on your other fiction works, if I may, uh, because before Sydney Chambers arrived on the scene, you published four other titles, all of which vary in the times and locations they're set, and they feature very, very different storylines. Were the ideas for these born out of an interest you already had in that historical period or even the topic that they focus on? Well, nearly all of nearly all of my work is about love and death. I mean, so that's that's the first novel, the, the Discovery of Chocolate, yeah. is about a man who can't die because he's in pursuit of chocolate. He drinks the elixir of life by mistake, and he lives for five hundred years. And then he realizes it's a novel that's a sort of comic novel that becomes increasingly serious because he, when he can't die, you know, it's about the need to die. Um, uh, but it's also about chocolate and love. So that's that's they're all related to that, and they're, they're all quests mm. of some kind. And then the second novel, The Colour of Heaven, is about lapis lazuli and the search for colour and the search for beauty and truth. And obviously, heaven implies death, so there's that. And then two novels when I made the fatal mistake of trying to be taken seriously. Um, <laughs> so I tried to write, write these two literary novels, uh, Canvey Island, about the floods of 1953, which really helped Grantchester because it starts in the 50s, and then East Fortune, which is about family life, and it's about a house and three brothers, and when do you stop being a child to your parents? So every time you go home, every time I went home when my mother was still alive, she treated me like I was 12, even if I was 48. I can relate to that. <laughs> <laughs> It's the last time they had control of you. See, I think yeah. it's the last time before you rebelled as an adolescent. I knocked off over a sherry glass, of course, being a vicar's house. I knocked off a sherry glass when I was 11. And for the next 40 years, every time anyone served sherry, they would say, oh, careful, James, will knock it over. And I knocked it over once when I was 11. I mean, you know, honestly, <laughs> pathetic. I had the same experience with a cup of tea, and I was never made to forget that. that and, the, and the patch on the carpet where it went. Oh, yes, it. absolutely. <laughs> Um, talking about something like if you take a book something like The Colour of Heaven which seems to me like it, it would have involved an awful lot of research but how much research is actually involved in my oh, actually book loads like yeah that? loads seriously loads um, so that's a lot of book reading and a lot of going and that um, some travel I mean often go I like to so I go to for sitting here to Germany a lot because he's married to a German woman uh, in the end and um, and I like to kind of walk Walks. So I go to Grantchester a lot and walk about. The key bit of research I do is I, I read the times for the day I'm writing about. So if I'm writing a story set in on the 15th of December 1961, I will get the times for that day. So I've read the newspaper Sydney read that morning mm. or that evening. So I know roughly what he's been reading. So I'm trying to do I do that all the time. That's the main bit of research. Wow, okay. And then I also do you know historical research. Uh, and social research and sometimes that's the fun bit so if a side I want to write about art or about cricket um, so I look at he, his, him and his dad go to the cricket so I look up mm. cricket, old cricket schools that's a massive waste of time totally pleasurable <laughs> but it's the most self-indulgent thing I do is look up old cricket schools yeah so it's fun that's the fun bit half the time um, just moving on to your other works, because you've written a number of plays for stage and radio, how does the process of writing a play differ to writing a novel, which I assume it must differ in some way? Yes, well, dialogue, you have to, dialogue is the crucial thing, mm. and you have to make sure that the dialogue sort of sings, and you have to, um, in a play, you have to keep the plot in the dialogue, and keep, you, you can't have any, unless you've got a narrator, mm. which I don't think works often. Um, you've got to... Uh, uh, and you've got to propel it. Uh, I suppose plays operate much more speedily. There's less le there's less leisure in the in the delivery. You know, you can you can 
you know, linger over a piece of prose. You can't linger over a piece of dialogue. It's all got to have a point to it. Mm. So that's trickier, but fun, good fun. I mean, writing dialogue is good fun. I like the whole dialogue bit, mm. but um, and it's good to have a, a balance. And everything's supposed to inform everything else, really. I mean, it's all work and it's all pleasure. You know, it's all you've got to just get on with it, and keep trying different things. Now, also, being a keen supporter of literature festivals myself, I was very interested to read that you've previously been the artistic director of the Bath Literary Festival. Can you tell me just a little bit about what that role comprises of? And actually, how did you get involved in the first place? Well, uh, I also run the London Literature Festival, and I now run Culture on Radio 4. So I I do a lot of this kind of thing. And, um, well, I got it because I applied for the job. But um, I, I quite... It involves putting on 120 or 150 or 200 events with writers who've either got a book out or are interesting or you want to set up, uh, you want to suddenly do the 17th century or you want to do the 20th century or you want to focus on Persia or the Second World War or something. And it's it's a cross between an open university degree and a party. So, <laughs> so And you just ask people along and, you don't, you know, they get paid 150 quid and they mm. come and talk about their books. People generally quite like talking about themselves. So it's not that hard. But you want to get have a sense of conviviality. And at Bath and in London, at the South Bank in London, I, I think it, I call it sort of public intimacy. You want to give people permission to have this intimacy that's also public and to talk about ideas and it's a it's a process of continuing education really it's a process of staying in the world of ideas it's sort of university for older people and people or younger people anybody really but it's a way of keeping what do we really think about things and of course i would say this wouldn't i but in many ways it's a replacement for church so people go to share ideas and have a collective experience just like they go to museums these are the kind of new secular spaces that are replacing a lot of the time, sacred spaces. I think as, as an audience member myself, so I always find it quite a privilege to go and meet the people who's shaped you know, my, my reading world, really. Yes, so it's, it's wonderful when it. they're lovely. Some writers are not so lovely. So it's a bit more <laughs> of a problem. Yeah, no, 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 no we're, not, we're not all wonderful, I have to say. But um, yes, there are a couple I could uh, tell you to avoid. But, um, <laughs> but uh, yes, when you meet someone like Hilary Mantel, it's absolutely amazing. Yeah, she's fantastic and a complete privilege to know her and meet her. That was actually nothing. And as part of the festivals, obviously, you are called to talk and, and do an author yes. talk yourself, but also to interview other authors. Yes. Do you have a preference as being the interviewer or the interviewee? Or is I it... much prefer asking the questions because exactly. I you know, know the answers. And it's, it's lovely when you meet, you know, the really... You know, really amazing people. Yeah. So, so the two, two or three most, I suppose, just to pick four amazing people: Richard Ford, the American writer; Marilyn Robinson, the American writer; Hilary Mantel, and and then the, the the woman who's known as my famous friend in the family, which is J.K. Rowling. So, I've made two films with her and interviewed yeah. her a lot, and she's amazing. She's a wonderful woman. And what you've got to try and find is um, how, how, what's going on in her head. Because when you meet her, she's quite normal. And you think, mm. but in her head... It's fantastic imagination. Amazing imagination, yeah. yeah. <laughs> now, you've also written several talks on literary themes, one of which that was interesting was called The Modern Flaneur, How to Stave Off Boredom and Lead a Literary Life, which you actually spoke about at Bath Spa University in one of your other roles where you hold the title of visiting professor. Um, now, correct me if I'm wrong, but I think the essence of this is that we're 
assaulted by so much information both visually and commercially that it's it has an effect become boring for us and the talk then goes on to discuss examples of boredom in literature and how we should never be bored when there's so much to read really um can i ask what the process of reading or to coin a phrase losing yourself in a good book means to you well um yes i, I was brought up my mother thought reading a book was kind of lazing around uh, and um, you, I wasn't doing anything. should have met my mum. <laughs> that's exactly what she thinks. <laughs> what are you doing lying, lying on a sofa reading a book? And I, it was working. And uh, and I, it's Keats had this phrase, the poet John Keats had this phrase, diligent indolence, that you worked hard at daydreaming in a way, and then ideas came. And I think that's what losing yourself in a good book. It's about diligent, it's about applying yourself to taking yourself out of time. So you... And become timeless, because obviously you can go back into the past and out into the future. So it's about living multiple lives and thinking differently and escaping the commercial assault of social media and everyday life and finding your own space and your own truth and your own time that might be somebody else's time, but it's yours too. And you can drop in and out of it, but it's probably better than the frenzied carelessness of everyday life mm. now and can I ask then going on from that who are your literary heroes would you say well they change Chekhov is my if I could write like Chekhov that would be the thing with this idea of what he manages to do at the beginning of a play like the cherry orchard I think is that every single character at the start of that play thinks they're the most important person in it and thinks it's all about them and to manage to divide mm. up that realism across characters Dickens for quick character description, you know, Mr. Dick and David Copperfield or any of the Dickensian characters. I mean, this sounds pretentious, but Tolstoy, because War and Peace and Anna Karenina are my favourite novels, and just the scale and breadth and ambition and the truth and the humanity, uh, Shakespeare, of course. But of modern writers, the people I mentioned, Richard Ford, Marilyn Robinson, um, uh, German writer Jenny Erpenbeck, I think it's really interesting, um, Hilary Mantel, um, that's that, that, those, that, that kind of thing. People who have scale and ambition, but at the same time have a kind of uh, sincerity and emotional resonance. And um, just this might be a little bit of a cheeky question, actually, but um, do you have any other projects lined up? Um, what, novels more? Give us otherwise. a chance. <laughs> I'm eager. I'm eager for the next installment. <laughs> Is um, there anything you can tell us about? Yes, I'm writing. Um, to, I'm writing a prequel to Sydney Chambers, which wow. is set in the Second World War, and it's basically why he became a priest, why and how he became a priest, and that'll come out next year. And then I'm writing a novel about Bach and the writing of the St Matthew Passion which is called The Great Passion. Um, and, um, is that a run-on from the, the play? play? Yes, it, it is. The, the play budget, was a little yeah. rehearsal. Yeah. So two novels, and then I've got to, apparently I've got to think up some new detective idea. Oh. But I, I, I've got an idea, but may not work. Um, so, yeah, you have to keep match fitting in the game, really. Otherwise, you can't sort of think, oh, I've written a few books, I'll have a lie down now. No. <laughs> it's a, it's a never-ending project, isn't it? That's well, it has to, you have to keep interested and engaged mm. and try and do your best really well there's a lot of people i think ready and eager for your, your next well, installment so. so um but I, I mean i could go on here but thank <laughs> you so much for well, joining me no, today um i can thoroughly recommend the sydney chambers books um and i wish you every success with whatever your next projects are anyway so thank, thank you, you James. Oh, it's a real privilege <laughs> thank you <laughs>